Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of women who were prominent in the 90s alternative rock scene and whose bands followed really similar paths. Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo and Louise Post of Veruca Salt. And I've also got a special guest on this week's intro, Myron Kaplan, who is the producer of this very podcast. Hi, Myron. Hey, what is up, Josh? Well, what is up is that you're joining me because you are a huge fan and even friendly with Kay Hanley. Yeah, it's weird to think about, but Kay and I go back over 20 years. I first met her when I was doing my undergrad in Boston, and she was starting to play out solo. And over the years, she's been really supportive of my music, and her Cleo bandmate, Michael Eisenstein, has produced a lot of my work. That's awesome. And you've been asking me probably since we first met, like, hey, why don't you get Kay on the podcast? She's going to be really great. And I said, you know, I hadn't thought about Letters to Cleo for many years, but Kay is up to really interesting stuff now. What's she doing? Indeed. And I know I'm a little biased, but Cleo fits in so well with the pantheon of 90s bands we've had on here. And Kay's got great stories. Cleo's first hit was the song Here and Now, which was on the Melrose Place soundtrack. And then they were on a bunch of movie soundtracks for 90s cult classics, like The Craft, 10 Things I Hate About You, and Kay sang for Rachel Lee Cook in Josie and the Pussycats. Cleo broke up in 2000 and got back together in 2016. And in that interim, Kay released solo records, co-founded musicians advocacy group Songwriters of North America, or SONA. And she and her writing partner, Michelle Lewis, who she mentions in this chat, wrote the songs for the Disney kids TV show Doc McStuffins. Kay's co-creator and executive producer of the forthcoming Disney Junior show, Kindergarten the Musical, which debuts in fall of 2024. And I don't have kids, but I'm really excited about it. Cleo actually tours every November, and Kay's recording a new 10-inch with the band, which will be ready this fall. And Josh, I have a song for you here. It's the title track to Cleo's 2016 EP, Back to Nebraska. That's great. So the other half of today's conversation is Louise Post, who was half of the songwriting team behind the 90s band Veruca Salt. You know, if you're old like me, you remember them as like kind of this crazy buzz band out of Chicago in the early 90s, like huge. They had a song called Seether. They were kind of really everywhere for a while. And then they had, you know, one of these stories where the music industry kind of beat them up a little bit. And they talk about this in the chat. Louise's songwriting partner was Nina Gordon. They had kind of a songwriting breakup and and Louise kept the name Veruca Salt, put out a bunch of great records after that. And eventually things sort of fizzled until about 10 years ago when they got the original Veruca Salt lineup back together. And it's one of those kind of happy endings. And Veruca Salt hasn't done a lot since then, but Louise just put out her very first solo record, which is called Sleepwalker. It's really great. A ton of amazing songs. And she's sort of back in it now, which is really nice to hear. So let's hear a track from that called What About. What about the movie nights? 
chat, Kay gushes, rightly, over Louise's new solo record, and the two talk about their experiences with their respective local music scenes in Boston and Chicago, the different phases of Veruca Salt, and living through that moment in 90s rock world where women were undeniably in the driver's seat for once. Yeah, it was a super fun chat. And thanks for joining me, Myron. A pleasure to be here as always, Josh. Everybody else, enjoy. Hi, Kay. Hi. (laughs) This is so exciting. I get to interview you and ask you all the dorky questions that I always want interviewers to ask you, but they never do. Oh, that's so saucy. I've been being interviewed all week in preparation for the launch of my record, Sleepwalker. Mm -hmm. And I've been, I'm sure that any question you have will be music to my ears. Are you sure? Because you and I know each other so well, and I do feel very comfortable asking you, you know, really personal questions, feel free to just say like, okay, we're not going there or whatever. So perfect. So, okay. We are going to talk about Sleepwalker because it's so fucking good, Louise. I'm going to fawn over it later. I want to get to it. But the first question I want to ask you is, so you and I, you're a band for Salt and my band Letters to Cleo. We were on our way to South by Southwest in 1994 at the same time. My band was in a van on tour. Yeah, ours too. And presumably yours was too. And we were playing a day apart at the Electric Lounge. Hmm. And it burned down the week before our showcase. You played in that tent as well? We played the night after you. I didn't know that. I've never said that. Oh my God, we share that weird experience. And here's why I need to know what your experience was. Because when we were driving there, you know, we had, this was like, I think our third or fourth time playing South by Southwest. And no one ever gave a shit. We had just put out our first indie record and we were excited because now maybe some people would come. And all, every zine we picked up, every newspaper, every like Rolling Stone, Spin, whatever it was, everyone was talking about Veruca Salt, Veruca Salt. And we were just like, Jesus Christ, who are these people? Like, what is... And so clearly there was a buzz band that year and it was you. And we perceived, it was so, it was, you guys were so everywhere leading up to your showcase at South By. And I just want to know, like, what was that period of time like for you guys when you, you know, like that winter and spring when people started to like latch on. Did you perceive the electricity around your band? Yeah, for sure. But we weren't prepared at all for that. Like we had just played, we did a three song demo that I went around and shopped to all of the clubs in Chicago and the little clubs. And I'm set up appointments with the booking agents at these clubs and went in with my demo, dropped it off and then followed up and had my little notebook. And I would check off the booking agent in the club. Anyway, got us these shows in Chicago and it was like it all happened really fast. That was in 93. Maybe we were we were playing shows by, I think, September 93. And then either we wanted to record with Bradwood or Steve Albini. But after our third show, both Brad and Jim Powers, who was of the new indie label Minty Fresh, were at our first show at Phyllis's Musical Inn. And Jim and Brad had a sort of a deal where Brad would record the seven inches for his bands. And Jim saw our band 
signed us after three shows to his label and went to Brad and said, will you, instead of doing like 10 singles for 10 bands, will you just make a record for this band? Wow. And so we went in for like two weeks. New Year's Eve, we played with Liz Fair and Hum. We opened up for Liz. And <gasps> she just, I mean, she was, Exile and Guyville was like, had just really hit. And mm-hmm. I felt a similar way, like everywhere in Chicago, all I saw was Liz Fair. And I was hell-bent on not liking it. I was like, this is, I am not going to like this record <laughs> because there was too much buzz around it. And then mm-hmm. I heard it. Nina said, you have to listen to this record, Louise. And I listened to it while washing dishes one day. And I thought, oh, shit, this is really good. And I fell in love with it. So by the time we opened up for her on New Year's Eve and this band Hum, who are incredible, I was sort of starstruck by Liz. And it was such an incredible thing to play with her. And then we went the next day, we went into the studio with Brad Wood, who was not only her producer, but her drummer and had made all these records that we loved, like the hum record, seam record, the red, red meat record that like, my God, so many albums that we loved at the time, sunny day, real estate and so on and so on. And so we went in the next day and that was January 1st, 94. No way. And there was no way we were going to finish in two weeks, which is what they had us slated for. These songs are done. Let's put them out in a seven inch. Because all we thought was that at most, like our friends and family were going to hear this. Our boyfriends would hear it. And I just wanted to go to Reckless Records in Chicago and find a seven inch in the V section. That was like the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. And somebody you probably know, Karen Glover at Hits Magazine. Yeah, got, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she got a hold of that seven inch somehow. It came across her desk and she got excited about it. And when Karen gets excited about something, people know about it Mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden there was all this buzz around our show at South by and we didn't even it was our first outing even though Nina and I had been working together and writing songs for a long time and the band had been rehearsing for a long time we were still relatively new on the scene in terms of anyone else being aware of us that is very fast and that must have just felt like what is happening (laughs) or did you feel did you feel like that was like the trajectory, like that's the way, oh, that's the way it's supposed to go. Like you, you shop your demo, you bring it to the club owners and then someone (laughs) finds out about it. They write about it. And the next thing you know, you get signed to a label and then you have a huge hit and like, it's going to be like this forever. I remember like before the age of cell phones, like coming home and there being the, the number 17 flashing on my answering machine and going like, I can't handle this. This is too, this was too many people wanting to be involved too quickly and I was I was managing us. I mean, Nina and I were managing our band. And it and all of a sudden it felt like, okay, this is too much. Um, really fast. And we didn't we didn't know like how to handle any of it. And we were meeting people at South by Southwest who wanted to sign us to their label. And ultimately Minty Fresh had a, did a deal with Geffen and we didn't have any choice anyway. It was really an intense time. What was that show like for you? Where were you guys in your trajectory? Well, we had just put out a record on Cherry Disc in 93, yeah. which was a Boston label. And the week of our showcase, the one lucky thing that happened, we didn't get a, you know, there was no buzz about Letters to Cleo coming into that whole thing, coming into South By. But the day that we got there, Steve White, the editor of Billboard, wrote a review of Aurora Gorealis, our Cherry Disc debut 
and put it on the cover of Billboard. So Michael Creamer and our booking agent, Larry Webman, like went to the Kinko's and mimeographed a bunch of copies of it and then like went to the Four Seasons and like passed it out to all the, remember how like all the A&R people used to have those huge, like ridiculous expense accounts and they just yeah, like, oh, yeah. put drinks and food and just, yeah. and so they were all there. And so we ended up with a lot of people at our show and we did end up signing a deal out of that. But here's what happened before that. So we were like, we are going to see Rue Gasalt. We're going to go see them if it kills us. And I remember, you you remember Stacey. I mean, I didn't have any like this thing of like, I wanted to be like a famous, we were from Boston. Like I was, I was supposed to be a secretary, you know, well, yeah, it was a different part of Boston. I <laughs> like, know, but okay, well. <laughs> I was not from, I was not from the Atsy Fatsy part of Boston. I was from like the very blue collar, very like where you didn't do things like Anyway, this is not okay. about me. This is about you. No, and- it's not. It's about both of us. And I want to know, like, you came out of Boston where there's this giant scene and you say there's no scene. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, not for me. Not when I was a teenager. I mean, there was a scene. There were punk rock shows, but I was not familiar with them. I was okay. a cheerleader and I listened to hit. I went straight from hip hop and like top 40 to like metal. And then when I was 17, I heard the Smiths and then my life changed. And then I found out about local band, but still like our local scene was like very local, but I still thought I was going to be like, have to get like a a job or something. I didn't think you could be in a band for a career. I would go see big arena shows when I was in high school. Like I mean, pretty much from like age 10 on, I went to arena shows. I went to some like opera house shows, but I never went to little sweaty club punk rock shows until later. But I would see like, first of all, I was a cheerleader who was into hip hop, but I did go see like, uh, I saw the Fleetwood Mac Tusk tour in a big (gasps) arena in St. Louis. I saw Ario Speedwagon. Yes, I did. I saw Prince a number of times. I saw the Controversy Tour. <gasps> what? Well, yeah. I couldn't. I mean, I loved. You were too young. I mean, but my mom wouldn't let me. No, I was, we were very Catholic. I was not allowed to. Oh, go. my God. He also had like a bed that came down from the ceiling and he was on That's- it. Amazing. And, and during Doomy Baby. Oh. But anyway, so I saw these giant shows. I saw the police there. And then like. I think I always thought that musicians came from Planet Rock. Of course, they didn't have day jobs. <laughs> right. They live from Rockford, Illinois, or Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're from Planet Rock. Yeah. You know? <laughs> You're not normal people. I guess around the advent of like 1990, it kind of came clear to me that, I mean, even like big metal bands, you know, were, were not from this, this world. They were in some kind of other, some kind of other realm, right? But then when it came like, when I became aware of, well, certainly Velvet Underground were from this world. They're from New York City. Totally that was like scary, scary underground world. But that's when I realized that all musicians didn't come from the sky, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I also didn't think they had jobs still. But then it, by the time like we were making our music, I was much more aware of it being, I mean, we lived in like blue collar Chicago. I was waiting tables just to make music, to be able to do what I love. And not pursuing a career of any kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was all about making art. That was it. So um, there was a scene. And it never felt like we had to break out of any scene. That didn't even occur to me, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So like you, I suppose, you know, I look, I think about Boston, I think about the Pixies and, and I think about belly and throwing muses and, and I could be wrong about, but that's, you know, and a number of other bands, but that's, uh, I think of a Boston scene and I have certainly letters to Cleo and I think about, you know, Chicago, I think that was like home and all these bands were friends of ours. And mm-hmm. just to be playing those same clubs was an honor to be in the same company with these bands. That actually reminds me of like, you know, you and I also have this incredible shared experience of being, being part of this moment yeah. where women were like, we were, on the rock charts, we were headlining the festivals. We like had a say in, you know, like the fashion that, I mean, we didn't even realize that it was fashion. At least I didn't. But like the way we dressed was kind of like, that was the the zeitgeist of, you know, we like yeah. created, we were the culture. And like, it was such a fleeting period of time, but it, even then it felt really important I just wonder what your, and I, I do remember, you know, the dark side of that, of getting kind of like, I remember Time Magazine did an interview with a bunch of us. And I think the woman who did the article kind of hoodwinked us into this interview. Do you remember the Cult of Cute? No. They did like, she tricked us all, all of all of us women into doing like this cover story interview about women in rock bands. And it ended up being how our style of dress was infantile and immature and how we were sexualizing these babyish images. Baby doll. The whole thing was just like tearing us all down after we had like, this was like, this had never happened before. Mm-hmm. That, you know, all these women were doing so well at rock radio and in rock and roll culture writ large. And, and, and how uh, interesting that it was a woman who did the teardown. Right. Women can be women's worst enemies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, the 90s, it was, people were, we were confused, Yeah, I guess. We invited this guy from Entertainment Weekly because it's Entertainment Weekly and he wanted to be on our van and tour around with us. And so we went around with him and took the photos for it with wonderful photos with Danny Clinch. Do you know him? Yes, I remember that name. Yes. Oh, my God. Still some of my favorite band photos um, from that era. But um, so this guy, his name was Nasid Hajiri. I hope he's doing well. He was in our van. He was in our van. <laughs> And he wrote a, you know, he's, you know, when you drive around and live with someone for a few days and they see all the ins and outs of the band and they watch your shows and they're pleasant, you feel like they're probably going to say nice things about you. Right. But all he wanted to write was that we had gotten a supposedly multi-million dollar contract from Geffen. And it was like the silver spoon article. And (gasps) it was so insulting and not mainly because, I mean, had that been true, Wow, that would have been really nice. But that is not how it works in the music industry. They make all the money and you get nothing. And so this mm-hmm. guy made it made us look so bad at a time when we were feeling already defensive about, you know, God forbid, getting too big too fast because we yep. offended the sensitive bands of Chicago who were like- Yeah, the, the indie cred police. We were like, we were on the front lines of that. Yeah. So then when this article came out, it was like the ship, the, the plane was going down and we were going with it. And it was just so insulting. And I sat there in our little hotel room. Nina and I, of course, were sharing hotel rooms. And I remember sitting there with my notebook and I wrote this letter, this angry letter that I never sent. It was like, my dear 
dear Nasid Hajiri. <laughs> it started out that way. And Nina still teases me about it because I just put <laughs> off on him for having written that. I'm sure you would have framed it and loved it because that's what journalists do when you write them, you know, angry stuff. So I'm still carrying that resentment around. Isn't that fun? Fuck that guy. It's rock music. Like, this is not a high art. Or, I mean, I I feel differently about it now. I do think songwriting is a high art. But at the time, I was just like, why are why am I getting shit on for doing this, like, thing that, like, like, why? Why are people shitting on me? It's like, I didn't do anything. I'm just like a singer in a dumb rock band. Because you had a measure of success, Kate, and God forbid, God forbid any woman dares show up in the spotlight with any kind of style, confidence, mm. and really, really quality artistic output, which is what Letter Cleo was doing. Whether or not, you know, downplay it all you like, it was really <laughs> good. And we just had the haters straight out of the gates. Like both of us dealt with that. I'm not sure yeah. how much more we dealt with it than our peers who happen to be men. It hasn't gone anywhere. But I would like to think that you know, we were part of a flow. There were so many strong, impressive, talented, deeply talented, passionate women artists who preceded us. And I I was so inspired by like all the women who were making music in my life from the from the time I was a kid. And it was Stevie Nicks and Christina McVie and like Michelle Phillips and Mama Cass to mm-hmm. uh, Nancy and Ann Wilson and the album covers I was just stare and stare at to like later when it was, I mean... I want to say everyone along the way, but like, okay, Wendy and Lisa. And yeah, I mean, Lisa Coleman was on the cover of Dirty Mind and I was mesmerized. <laughs> and, you know, straight to like, um, I mean, when I first heard Throwing Muses, I was like, oh I my know. God, where's my husband? What? And then, my God, and then Belly blew me away and My Bloody Valentine. And mm-hmm. um Let's not forget, of course, the Breeders and the Pixies. Oh, and I love Sinead O'Connor and Kate Bush changed my life. And I was always gravitating towards these female artists. Did you feel more connected to the female artists? Because I always think of you as like a Bowie or like an ACDC kind of girl. So I want to hear more about that. Like, do you feel like those female rockers were really influential to you and how? Oh, my God. In every way. That's a big question. I don't know how to even touch that, but they were, they shaped who I am musically for sure. I mean, I was listening, let's say junior year in college, I had Kate Bush, Hounds of Love, and I also had R.E.M. Life's Rich Pageant, and they were my favorite two cassettes, right? And I played them mm-hmm. constantly. And I can't say which one I played more, but I loved them both. And now I listen to, I still listen to Kate Bush, Hounds of Love, but I don't listen to Life's Rich Pageant. Not because I don't think it's a great record, but because there's so much, so much depth and because she dared to reveal herself. And it's really like, mm-hmm. so often it comes down to the lyrics for me. It comes down to like how much you're going to let me in and be a part, be stripped bare. Even if it's big production, stripped bare emotion. That is what always really grabs me and pulls me in and makes that a lasting record for me. Like uh, Lou Reed, Transformer, or mm. I mean, the Banana album by Velvet Underground, 
and yes, Bowie. Oh my God. Yes, Bowie. Mm -hmm. And I will listen to ACDC back in black any day, but I'm not going to put on an ACDC record. I think you maybe have me confused with Nina in that one. She loves ACDC and so does Jim. And so does Steve. I always think of Nina as like, like Linda Ronstadt, you know, floating around Laurel Canyon in a, in a gauzy (laughs) nightgown, like as a pixie. And I think of you as like biker boots and an SG, like you're fucking, you know, Angus Young or whatever. I, well, that's funny without the shorts. But like, I always think of you as like the balls out rocker and her as like pixie dust. I don't, in the both things are like amazing. Oh, no, I, I thank you. She definitely loves Linda Ronstadt. Let's get that clear. <laughs> but like at the same time, it's funny because as my dearly departed best friend Joe said, Nina's one deep bitch. She's like, you may think like she's got the soft side and and like only like people would say like, oh, Nina's the pop one and Louise is the rock one. Not so. Mm. You hear some of the heaviest songs we have, Earth Crusher, Poetry Kit, Mm -hmm. 25. I mean, and and Stoneface. I mean, Nina is a rocker. I mean, two Volcano Girls. Like there's, she is absolutely as rock as I am. And she has also, we both, we all have multiple sides, right? But no, I'm. I've definitely always really loved female singers and artists who who really convey like tremendous depth, like Joni Mitchell and Ricky Lee Jones. So you and Nina obviously went on this like insane ride together, you know, for better and for worse. And like there's so much mystery around the breakup of the band and we don't have to talk about that. But like going into like sort of like the ride for you guys was probably what like six years i mean up until you know before you guys got back together yeah and so kind of short what was that like because you guys i mean jesus you guys went everywhere you guys played all the like all the festivals in europe you were like huge and you know all those like pictures of like screaming people in japan and like i mean you guys were and are but at that time like by any standards in the 90s like that one of the top top bands playing all the biggest shows and so what did that do to your relationship like every night getting up on stage and depending on each other for everything for everything that you were you were completely reliant on each other i would imagine for pretty much everything when you were in the thick of it whether it was camaraderie your creativity the money that you made what was that like Wow. It was really intense. We were twinning so hard. We were so close. We would spend hours and hours on the phone every night together for years. And then once we stopped sharing a hotel room, we would still spend hours on the phone from our respective hotel rooms. There was a lot of silliness, but a lot of it was um, just pouring over every decision and every Mm. little moment and everything we were doing. And despite what you're saying, like we did headline some, you know, some big theater tours, but we were, we always felt like we were still the, the openers. Like we opened for, we, we opened for live at these big sheds. We were open for live and then PJ Harvey, we were the opener of those. And then live PJ Harvey was the second band. 
And then that was on American Thighs. And then on our second record, Eight Arms Told You, we opened for Bush, this giant tour. They were peaking in their, you know, on Razor Blade suitcase. They were out there and we were opening for them. And that was an incredible experience for us to open for them. We weren't headlining. It was great, but we felt like we hadn't arrived yet. And that was yet to come. And because of what you said earlier about like how quickly things happened, we felt like it was coming. And so when Eight Arms to Hold You didn't, you know, didn't have the success that we expected to, didn't skyrocket us into the next level of like headlining stadiums, we thought we had failed. Because mm, Volcano Girls was a huge single. Yeah. It's like almost like body dysmorphia or something. Sure. Um, which I think I do suffer from. But I <laughs> did have, it was like a band dysmorphia where like we didn't sure. think of ourselves as really big. And maybe it was self-protecting because sure. if you start thinking of yourself as a really big band, then... I don't know. I think you're kind of screwed. Or maybe once you are, you can just really own it. But we never felt like we were at that level. And instead of it propelling us, the suddenness of our success, and I think all the anxiety surrounding it, honestly, from all angles and within the band and within it, it like very quickly like ate away at my relationship with Nina and at the mm. trust between us. And that was really the core of it the trust mm -hmm. started to shift. And when there was a, when it was splintered, we really couldn't recover from that. I assumed you guys were playing the same kind of shows that we were that whole time. I don't think so. I think the thing we had that was different was that we, like we had been together for so long. I mean, yeah, yeah. we had been together, before we got a deal, we had already been a band for, you know, four years and it had been like touring and okay. and we, you know, and we like, you know, in between album cycles, we would be playing like college gigs to make money, to make sure that like we had enough money in the bank and, you know, we yeah. had very blue collar management. So it was like, there was enough to keep us together yeah. when we were, because we probably would have fallen, we were falling apart at that time that Stacy left Cleo to join Drew Assaults, you know, we made one more record after that, but things were, you know, the drugs yeah. came in and oh, then it yeah. was like, you know, that was definitely, those were the cocaine years and that never, that that's always the beginning of the end. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. The downfall. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> for any band. I, I don't recommend it for anybody who's listening. <laughs> no. So you guys, what year did you guys break up? Um, we broke up in 90, it was like February of 98. And did you, did you talk about it? Were you guys like, we're breaking up? Our last show was Mamakin. In Boston? Yeah. That's when we all hung out that night. Oh my God. That was at your place? At my house. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. That was your last show? Yeah, that was it. Holy yeah. smokes. Do you yeah. remember that? I remember being oh. at your place. I remember the show. The show was so insane. Oh, my God. And actually, Nina met her husband that night. Oh, wow. Yeah, she met him back. Yeah. Evidently, that was the night. That's funny. Um, Nina threw olives out of her bra. And we she used to take, like, whatever was in the deli tray. Usually it was M&M's. Oh, my but, God. You know, it devolved to olives. So <laughs> that's what. Wow. Then later, years later, I met a guy here in L.A. who's like, I was at your last show. And I'm like. Really? Because I remember stage diving and I remember I was in a bra and he's like, yeah, I actually, you gave me the gum out of your mouth. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. And back then, that was like nothing. That was just like, a, that was just like, oh, Tuesday. You yeah, totally. like, you dove off the state and like spit your gum into my mouth. Yeah, it's like oh, okay, that sounds totally plausible. Yeah, even sexy, <laughs> sort of weirdly. Right. <laughs> oh my god, that was pretty funny. Oh, the nineties. But then, yeah, that, and then it was after that that things just kind of fell apart. They had been falling apart for some time, and we had trouble yeah. going into Eight Arms to Hold You with the demos we were writing. There was just some just some mistrust brewing among songwriters mm-hmm. and a feeling like there were whisperings mm. and, and just feeling, I felt like something was off. Yeah. I felt like something's really wrong here. with you or with her or just like the vibe that was like a disturbance in the force. It was, that's a really nice way to put it. It just didn't feel like I didn't feel like it was always prior to that experience. Prior to that moment, I was, always me and Nina bringing our songs to each other. But mm-hmm. at that point it became the boys were involved. And so it became mm. more of us bringing our songs to the band without the screening and the original like trust and care that we took with one another. Right. And so it was almost like it went from Nina, I've got the song. I'm so excited about it. Can't wait to play it for you and vice versa. Or I'm really nervous about it. I can't wait to play for you. Or, or, you know, I need help with this part or whatever. To me showing up with a guitar and vice versa, playing a song for the band and feeling like I was auditioning it. And I and mm-hmm. I developed this, this sense of insecurity in my within my own band and this mistrust that there weren't things going on around me that were all it, that I wasn't feeling supported as a songwriter. Right. And it was really fucked up. It didn't feel good. And I ended up, we made these demos and I felt like we didn't spend as much time or care on the songs I had, you know, penned, even though they were, they ultimately turned into band songs. The ones that I had like written in my bedroom that brought to the band. And and when Bob Rock received the demo, he said, um, he told me, he told me while we were recording the record in Hawaii that he could tell that there was more attention paid to this, like the quote Nina songs, unquote. Mm-hmm. And he said, yours weren't as fully developed. I feel like I really want to pay. I really want to bring some of these out of the, not out of the darkness, but like, I want to bring these to life and I want to make sure that there's a balance here. Mm-hmm. And so as a producer, he kind of stepped in and leveled the scales. Right. And it was a really weird dynamic emerging already on our second record. And I didn't feel like I recognized the people around me and the communication was shutting down. And that was fast. I mean, in the scheme of things, that was really fast. Yeah. And we had a bit of a renaissance of songwriting right before we broke up, Nina and I, where we started writing again, just the two of us together, like in her living room with our guitars and we actually began working on what became Tonight and the Rest of My Life. No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, it would have been a very different song with me involved. It was more yeah. of a ramp up. Like, it was a different, a whole different animal. And I mm-hmm. loved when I later heard it. I loved what she, what she did with it and where she took it. I thought it was a, you know, a spectacular song. It would have been different with me. And the song Pretty Boys that was on Resolver was a song that she and I were writing together. And it was the last, I think it was the last song on Resolver. And it was the lyrics we wrote were um, Back of the Bus in Berlin. That was the mm. summer of sin. Nina, Louise, and a drummer who's nothing like Jim. Oh. <laughs> and ultimately, hey. I ended up changing the lyrics to um, 
Brian and Richie pounding a bottle of gin because I was dating Brian Leesgang and he had broken up with Richard <laughs> Patrick from Filter. And we had, we were both reeling from these breakups from our band. Right. We came together and ma- and he made that record and he produced it. And we were both like these wounded, wounded birds who found each other. So the band had at least the partnership between you and Nina ended, but you continued writing and putting out, you put out two Vruga Salt records without Nina. Is that correct? Yeah. Two and a half if you include an EP. Yeah. So, um, and that first one was with Brian or? Um, Brian was the producer. How did you make that decision to do that? Like what? what, Cause that what I always thought that was like really fucking ballsy that you, (laughs) that you did. I mean, it showed like a lot of strength and I I don't know what I would have done in that situation, but it's like this, it, it seemed to me, it's like, this is my band and I'm not. I'm not stopping. Where did that strength to do that come from? Well, it came out of unbridled pride, rage, and all tied together. Um, Mm. I didn't want the band to be over. And I was furious with my band partner. And I was furious with my band members. And I was left with, because she decided to leave the band, I was left with the brand and was, you know, encouraged by our lawyer at the time and another woman in the industry we both know and love who's very experienced mm-hmm. to hold on to that name. I didn't want the band to be over and I didn't want the name to die. I didn't want the brand to die. It wasn't like I was thinking of it like craft cheese or something. I was thinking of it like <laughs> I want to go to the record store and find more Verucasol records. And I didn't yeah. feel I didn't feel done. And I was willing to like go into therapy and do whatever it took to get us back on the same page and communicating again. But that was, the door was shut for me. Was the door shut for you? No. Or it was just, it was shut for, for Nina, but not for you Yeah. at that time. Right. And she was ready to move on and I was ready to keep going and do whatever it took to keep going. But in hindsight, like it makes sense that we parted ways when we did and did what we did. It was a strong decision, but it was actually the harder decision ultimately Mm. because the name was too much to carry without the original band members. And Mm. I tried really hard to keep that band with different members going and alive. It was instinctively what felt right to me at the moment. And I remember saying, I'm I'm making the decision and I'm not going to turn back. I'm not going to mm-hmm. question it. I ended up spending a lot of time questioning the decision and not because I was necessarily under fire for it, but because it was too hard to, to carry. And I was really trying to keep, stay true to the band sound, to the band style. And that was in basically just really natural for me. It, it really, it, it hurts to think back both for Nina and me about the record that we could have made at that time and didn't because we were both mm-hmm. such dumbasses. We didn't like just duke it out with nerf bats and just like <laughs> Keith could have, you know, making Keith would like, like just go have a brawl and get through it and be a band. But, you know, we, our management was not, was not guiding us through this with deft caring hands. Oh, and wow. They didn't like, sit us down and talk about how we can get through this. They didn't like, they watched us implode and they were witnesses to it. They took sides and that was that. And there was no, it was not graceful. It was not caring. It was like two like metal dudes managing sensitive, powerful female artists and being dismissive. And that was a wake up call also. Like 
I remember when we decided to have these guys manage us, I thought something about just turning it all over to to two men, especially on one hand, it felt like, oh, thank God, there's a man in charge. Some little girl inside of me was like, oh, there's a man in charge. There's two men in charge and they're powerful and they know the industry. And we're just these little indie twerps who don't know anything. And we're overwhelmed and they'll, they'll take over and they'll, they'll take care of everything. Mm-hmm. And then, but ultimately we just gave away our power. That makes me so, that just breaks my heart that there was no one there to just like guide you no through that. And, yeah. and it was also a different period of time where it was just assumed, you know, that artists are crazy and th- these breakups are, you know, like all the drama and stuff that goes Along with, I mean, when you hear about it happening to other people, you know, it just sort of like builds the legend, the rock and roll legend, like these crazy rock and roll people. But like, there are human beings behind this, and you guys were best friends, and you know, and co-writers, and just the fact that like there was no one there to value that and to encourage you guys to try and fight through it is just. No, there wasn't. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. Yeah, it is. We meet people all the time who say that they were in, you know, ninth grade when they found out we broke up or whatever, and they had to leave first period because they were crying. And, oh. and um, and it was we we were like, you know, the risk of sounding really corny. We were like waving the flag of feminism and female bonding, and we were these two best friends who were like you know, volcano girls, so to speak. And mm-hmm. we imploded and we sent such a message of division among women, which is exactly the opposite of what we wanted to send. We didn't just let ourselves down and break each other's hearts. We just let our fans down. And that was a tough one. And I think that was another reason it felt really important for me to keep the band going. And I'm really proud of the records I made with at that time. And we jokingly call it Veruca Starship years because- <laughs> My band. I remember you calling it that. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my the bandmates of your the ones that are original the original bandmates of Veruca Salt were like calling it that at the time, and I found out later, and I thought, God, if I'd only had the genius to do that to call it that it would have been really fun because you guys always did have such a great like sense of humor about these things. Hope so. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. 
Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of the TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. So we have been talking for almost an hour, and we still have not talked about Sleepwalker. I do want to just say one more thing about, two more things about Veruca Salt. The one thing is that the first time I saw you was at that electric lounge show in Austin at South by Southwest. I did get to see you that night. I didn't know you were there. And you guys, well, we didn't know each other then, so. Yeah. But you guys played, well, first of all, you looked, you did not look anything like the the girl, like we were all wearing like, you know, I mean, I was dressed, I was always dressed like a, a 14 year old boy with like my boyfriend's giant striped shirt on, like colored striped shirt and like big uh-huh. gigantic dungarees and, you know, and I just, I looked like a, a boy child and you got, and like other girls were like dressing in, you know, Courtney was doing the baby doll dresses and all of that. And you got, you and Nina were wearing like biker boots and Black, just like you looked so rock and roll. And you, the first song I remember you doing was Victrola. And I I think I cried. And then you <laughs> played the When I Was 25 song. And I was like, <gasps> like, I was just, I heard every word. And I was like, I was so sold. So oh. sold on you guys as people and as a band. So I wanted to tell you that first. And Thank then... You. And then I, I would love to talk about, you know, you guys getting back together, but obviously, you know, that's what happened. You guys came back to each other 10 years later or whatever. Well, you and sang that, on that record. You sang on Ghost Notes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I met you in 94. That's when I first, I heard Victrola and Jesus. I, I saw you guys play in 94 and I've been a fan ever since. It's almost our anniversary, Kay. <laughs> I <I'm, laughs> Oh, I know. So I was sent a copy of the record so I could, um, I asked for a copy of the record so that I could prepare for our conversation because I figured I'd just like listen through or whatever. I never expect to like anybody's record. I never expect to, you know. I have had this on repeat for like, Louise, your songwriting on this record is like lyrically... And melodically, it's like you have leapt into a completely different category. And I want to know what the fuck. (laughs) How the fuck did you... First of all, okay, question. Are there any co-writers? Did you write any of these songs with anyone? Um, First of all, fucking thank you. And (laughs) second of all, no. 
Uh, no, no, so no other songwriters. Whoa. I just started writing these songs after Ghost Notes. I really wanted to make another Virgo Salt record. I wanted to tour more of the record and it just wasn't in the air. We had little mm-hmm. kids and uh, we made the decision to not stay out on the road. And then the next record just didn't seem to be naturally happening. I was working with Nina on some other things. And we did skip the entire healing chapter of Ghost Notes, which was profound, poignant, and mm. I so incredibly healing for not just me and Nina, but the four of us. And we'd all grown so much as people and we're happy, healthy, and whole and mm. still growing, you know, but mm-hmm. it's not like it all, it wasn't like it all stopped right when we got back together, but we began this new chapter and I thought, all right, we're beginning this new chapter. This is the first of many albums. And it ended up being the first, and then there wasn't one coming next. And I was kind of waiting and waiting. And then I realized this, my, I kept writing and I realized they had to go somewhere. And if they weren't mm. going to go on a Brooke Assault record, they were going to have to go on a Louise Post record. I have collaborated with other people, but I haven't co-written with other people. Mm. My producer, Matt Drenick, I met on tour in 2014. His band Battle Me opened up for us on our reunion Mm. tour. And I admired him a lot as a songwriter. And I continued to, as he started writing, all. he wrote the music for Sons of Anarchy. And he's a really talented guy. And he and his wife had just moved to my neighborhood with their new newborn from Portland. And my label guy who put out ghost notes hooked me up with, with Matt. And we, he, like a few years, even prior to COVID, I was sending him some songs I was writing and he was excited about them. And um, I actually started a band inadvertently with a couple other parents from my kid's school. (laughs) As you do. Yeah, as one does. Yes. Uh, the mom and I, we were both, she was in a band in Brooklyn. I had been in Brookasal. We were on pause and we started playing music with the kids. Wow. And we, and I ended up doing that for like three years. I was teaching, by the end, I was doing TK through third for two different schools and putting on these big concerts with parent bands. Wow. It was so cool. I never knew that I had that in me or I wanted to do that, but right. it was an incredibly rewarding, beautiful experience because as you know, the public schools have no music for the kids mm-hmm. and yep. it is like a crime and needs to be rectified. Like it's an emergency. I agree. And yet I couldn't continue like as a one woman force and still write music. So things kind of the stars aligned. I started writing more for this album and weirdly like the song started coming out of my sleep more out of dreams and I would wake up and think I wish I'd written that song and I'd think wait a minute I did write that song and I'd go to grab my phone and I'd sing something in the voice memo and then I'd figure out the bass line in my head and this whole record was written like that like hearing a snippet of something and then writing a song from that snippet a melody kind of haunting me and not knowing where I heard it. And then it turns into something else mm-hmm. entirely. And then just like songs, just writing themselves in my head and finding the instrumentation afterwards. And I also learned, I finally learned logic. Oh, cool. Well, once I did that, I realized like, oh, I'm making a record. Your new single is awesome. It's my second favorite song on the record. The thing that I love about this song is that it's kind of like, it's got this just like nasty, like guided by voices, guitars, like shitty, nasty, <laughs> ugly sounding. Blah. 
But then also just like very hi-fi elements to it. And the the nature of your, like the way your vocals are recorded on this record are so perfect for your voice. I sense that there must have been a collaboration between you and your producer. I feel like there was a great amount of, like I imagine like conversations taking place about the way you built a lot of these songs out. They're like, a lot of these songs have like these really generous like, counter melodies to like stretch out to like build the outros of the songs and like these counter melodies that could have stood on their own as like their own songs but they're just kind of like whispered underneath the surface of these other songs and like there's so much depth there I can't wait to listen to this on headphones and kind of have that experience but what about seems like it could I can imagine that being like out of a dream My number one favorite, favorite song is Don't Give Up. And it reminds me of like a Harry Styles song. I can't believe you made the Harry Styles connection because I think it was written on the heels of As It Was coming out. And I think that that's when the chorus came to me because the song came about months and months before that. And there was the song, it was sitting there and I didn't know what the chorus was. And I was like... I already had the verses, but I didn't know what the chorus was. And all of a sudden I just started singing. I was listening to it. I was listening to the voice memo of it. And I was like, oh, don't give up yet. Don't give up. And it kind of reminded me of as it was. Oh, wow. The same as it was. So it's funny that you made that connection. That's funny. After I had finished the song, I was like, does this kind of resemble that? That, But I didn't get it from that. I got oh. it from, there, there's like this very specific, the voicing of the, the chords oh. is a lot like, it has actually nothing to do with the melody. It's about the chord progression and just like, just the simplicity of it. And th- there's just like something that's like intoxicating about that chord progression and how it's like really repetitive. And I just, oh my God, I fucking love it. Thank you, Kay. I love that song so much. And it it actually came out of listening. I was listening with Matt to uh, Silver Sun Pickups. That's okay. That was inspired by that. But the song, um, I didn't know what it was about until that, that line like popped out one day. And I was like, oh, there it is. There's the song. And I have had a dear friend who had the worst addiction, drug addiction um, I've ever seen. And ever will. And um, she was my best friend from high school. And um, I've been writing songs in the hopes that she would get better for years and years. So many songs to her, for her, for anyone who knows my records, um, Virgo Salt's records, they're all over the place. And um, I used to, I was always expecting the call that, I was always expecting the call, the worst call when she would go through hard times and I wrote a song called wake up dead because I thought she was determined to kill herself with what she was doing. And, um, over time I came to understand that it was her disease and it was really like there were, I was dealing with two people. It was her and her disease. And, um, I, one really important thing for Joe who I lost in this past January after writing that song, I was like my, my Hail Mary, my like, please don't give up yet. Mm. Because I felt like the end might be coming. And she was one of the great loves of my life. Mm. And um, I was scared to be without her. I still am. Mm. 
and um, I'm really not okay with it. But I really came to understand that really became very sensitive to the stigma attached to addiction. And I talk about this now because my friend was very ill. My friend had a disease that was killing her and my friend was not flawed. She was not a bad person. She was a sick person. And I have to say this loudly because there is a stigma attached to the disease of addiction and alcoholism that is very dangerous for our society and for our inhabitants, for our people, because without it being taken seriously on mass and revered and be have, have the appropriate level of attention, medical attention, exploration, research done into the brain that will actually help expose and understand how to treat this, this very serious, deadly disease, our beloveds are going to keep dying from it. Mm-hmm. And, and no one is impervious. No one is exempt. And whether or not you're born with the gene, there are people who are dying from this disease all over the place. I just lost my best friend. And honestly, the song Don't Give Up gives me comfort. Even just listening to it, 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 it's one of the things that right now makes me feel closer to her, Mm -hmm. um, including wearing her cozy sweaters. And um, (laughs) sometimes if I'm about to do something that feels a little, I don't know, uncomfortable, this whole process is rather uncomfortable. Going on stage as like a solo artist feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I grow into those shoes and I hope, I hope it just is, I find it to be really fun straight out of the gates and really meaningful. I think I will, but like, I'm scared, you know, I feel like, yes, I I embrace this moment, but it's not easy. I'm proud of my record. And I don't know if anyone's going to come to the shows, maybe 20 mm-hmm. people, you know, maybe 50. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. I have no idea. And um, whatever it is, it's got to be okay. I need to be an acceptance of that. Yeah. And be excited for playing to one person to, you know, 500 people. Like, whatever it is, I'll be excited to do it. And I'll show up for it. And my friend will be there with me. And whenever I think about her, I'm like, oh, this is no big deal. This is no big deal. She used to always say, just go deliver the pizza, Wheezy. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) I had stage fright. Um, she would say, you've already, you know, you've already made the pizza. Now you just have to go deliver it. It's just so beautiful, Louise. I'm so fucking proud of you and just so happy for you that like you made this beautiful work of art and I can't wait to see it. And I know people are going to come. I can't wait to see your band and I can't wait to see how you perform these, you know, I mean, your voice sounds amazing. These songs are so perfect for your voice and it's going to be, it's going to be, I'm, I'm fucking psyched. I cannot wait. And I'm so, I'm so happy for you, sis. Thank you, sis. I really appreciate it. Coming from you, that means just the world and what you're doing. I write songs for animation. That's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. And Michelle and I and our two partners sold a show to Disney two years ago and it got greenlit a year ago. And so now we're, we have our own series at Disney Junior and it's in production and it's like the busiest, craziest, most amazing thing in the world. And I just, I love my job. Love my job. It's incredible. Is this the one that 
It's not out yet? Your show isn't It's not out yet. Oh, but okay. we did like the, all the music for Doc McStuffins and... Well, I know that. And, and in and, fact, my child was two years old and we were watching Doc McStuffins first time. And I noticed the music, the theme song. And I was like, God, that's a really good song. <laughs> I really, it really stuck out to me. And I was like, wow, they're serious about the music in this show. And then we kept watching and there was this beautiful ballad. I can't remember what the, which one it was now, but... It was so gorgeous. And I thought, this is an incredible show. Like, this music is incredible. <laughs> and I sat through the credits. So I had to know. And, of course, the names Kay Hanley and Michelle Lewis come up. <laughs> here in our house in Silver Lake with my two-year-old, just having allowed them to begun watching TV. And I think it was like Doc McStuffins and Dora the Explorer. Right. And, oh, my God. I was blown away. And I was like, of course it's my friends. Of course <laughs> incredible music for this show. That's why it's so good. I was blown away. And then I always wanted to watch that show every day. Like that was the one we loved. <laughs> Thanks, Louise. It was, you guys. Thank you. it was incredible. I we just have we have the best, we have the best job and the best time. It's gotten very real because you know, this is our first. You know, my first time as an executive producer in television. And um, so I really actually like it's actual work. <laughs> like, yeah. I actually, it's not just like, oh, write a, write, write. So, I mean, writing songs for animation is a real job, but it's gotten very real. And, you know, and I'm still where Michael, Greg and I are about to go in and do some Clio recording. We'll go. We go on tour every November. So. I'm so you know. glad. I'm so glad that you're doing that as well because your fans, we all want you to do that. It's important. I mean, I imagine it's important for you guys and to keep that part of your career alive is in your keep growing your legacy in that way too. Cause that's, that's a part of you that I would, you know, as a fan, I would hate to see like Peter away, Peter off or whatever, yeah. or fade away. And I'm so glad you're doing that. And congratulations on working on getting the show greenlit on making your own show and being an executive producer. Like that is massive. Thanks. That is incredible. It's an amazing <laughs> moment. And you guys have are so well earned, so well deserved. Thank you. We're enjoying it. It's really a lot of fun. And this is like, you know, this is the third this is the third act of my career and I hope I'm able to ride this into the sunset. But don't you, I mean, I, honestly, when it comes to like doing my own music, doing Clio or writing solo songs, whatever it is, it's like the ability to do that is kind of contingent on my ability to do other things in the meantime. Like I kind of have to, it, with creativity, I can't be putting all my creativity in one bucket because I feel like, you know, just sameness is the enemy mm. of of creative innovation. And so I kind of just mix being able to like write songs for animation and have that be like my, like write songs for scripts and do that and like then be a mom and do these other things allows or do, you know, copyright advocacy and activism. When I come back to my solo songwriting or my creative songwriting that's just for me or the band it's like I'm able to give so much more to it when I'm coming back to it just for the joy of doing it you know as opposed to relying on it I will say that you know just to wrap this up that I have I think a different experience I have a really hard time 
wearing different hats at the same time. Mm. And I, for that, for example, I couldn't continue teaching music at an elementary school and be working on my own stuff because I don't have, and be a mom full time of a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, or in this case, a 13-year-old, because I don't have, I don't have the bandwidth. I just don't have the- Are they 13? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Holy smokes. I know. Well, I know yours are like beyond, like I can't even- Henry's, Henry's 20 and Zoe Mabel is 23. She's going to be 24 next month. Oh my God. She already graduated from college and moved back to Boston. Oh my God. I know. <sighs> it's crazy. Anyway, we have a lot to catch up on yeah. and I have to actually go to work. So yeah, well, we all have to go to work, but this is, this is <laughs> a lovely diversion and I'm so glad we got to chat. It's nothing oh. like I can imagine a better way to spend an afternoon. Okay. Mm, Louise, I just think you're the best. I feel the same about you, my little butterfly. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Louise Post and Kay Hanley for chatting, and also for my special guest, Myron Kaplan, for providing much-needed insight. If you like what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform, and check out all the goodness at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced, as I said, by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.